At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Is that our new theme song? Don't you know the song, Aaron? No, I have no idea what that song so is. So fresh and so clean, clean. <laughs> Where did that come from? It's in my brain right now. Why is that in your brain right now? <laughs> We're getting ready to do a podcast. One I should mention, by the way, is long enough that we don't need a bunch of stuff at the front. <laughs> we had a really fantastic conversation with oh, a friend. Oh, it's so good. I'm really excited to play this for you guys. Um, he, David, our guest, may be joining us in the chat today. Of course, we'll be in the chat, chatting it up, as always. Yeah, of course. We should probably get right into it. It's already a little bit long, so just know you'll be going a little past one today, uh, maybe like quarter after, something like that, to listen to the whole thing. But it's a great conversation. Oh, no. Oh, no. Mm. So fresh and so clean, clean. Thanks, Zay. Uh-huh. Ain't nobody as dope as me. I'm just so fresh and so clean. All right, that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> well, speaking of dope and being clean, <laughs> we're going to head into our conversation now. Potentially I, the most awkward segue we've ever had. Uh, potentially. Uh, we loved having David in. We're excited for you to meet him. And this starts a series we're planning uh, to do on addiction and all the different approaches that people have in their life. Uh, you know, about this topic, about substance abuse and recovery and all that kind of stuff. So as always, we'll go right into the conversation, mid-conversation, and then just kind of let it play out from there. But I found that if I actually want to start speaking and having people invite me to speak, I probably need to toot my own horn because it seems like sometimes other people won't toot it for you. And I found that being uh, early and reliable Helps a lot. Too. Being an early and reliable tutor. Yes. Mm-hmm. Frequently. Well. I toot frequently as well. It reminds me of this really cute picture no, I, I saw the other day. It was a uh, a stormtrooper sitting on a toilet. Mm-hmm. And it said, you can have your elf on your on a shelf. Uh, I'll take my trooper on a pooper. <laughs> I thought it was really cute. Trooper on a pooper this year. 
Yes. And That's what I'm going to do to my kids. Welcome to another episode of Shoe the Dough. <laughs> That's right. We've already we've already got our prerequisite uh, toilet humor in, so we it can happens get, in every episode. So we can go ahead and get. And moving. we don't even mean to. Glad not to disappoint. That's right. Right <laughs> off the bat, you fit right in. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about why we're here, why we're doing this. Danae, why don't you kind of introduce the the topic and and what we're going to talk about a little bit, and our guest. Well, our guest is David Stoker. And I've known the Stokers uh, for several years now. David works with addiction recovery, has his own whole whole thing going. And we'll talk about that here in a second. But we started to think, okay, how can we have a conversation about addiction? Because we do a segment uh, called No Longer Safe, which is what you're listening to, where we try to take a topic that is a little bit more sensitive. And as we unpack it, we're just trying to all talk from a place of peace and understanding and just kind of genuine curiosity about a subject and addiction seemed to be a really good one to start with and then i found out that a couple of my friends uh would like to come in and talk about their experience with addiction they're both in their early 20s and just now getting off of meth they're getting clean one for about a year and then the other one just a few months behind and then talk to their mother too who would like to join us on the podcast so we're gonna do kind of a series of talking about addiction from multiple angles and that's kind of how this has come to be. So here we are. And when we talk about addiction in in this realm, we're talking specifically about substance addiction because addiction is a really broad topic. And, I, and I'm sure some of what we talk about will cover even other kinds of addiction, whether it be pornography or you know food, caffeine, or I mean, there are so many different kinds of addictions. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, we're going to talk about uh, being a drug a- drug addict. What's that? What's that like? You know. Uh, what's it like to be involved in the life of a drug addict? What's, you know, so I think just so it's clear, we're kind of focusing in on that part of addiction as it deals with like substance abuse, right? And the recovery part. In the recovery part, of course. That's a good part not to forget. Yes. I think the recovery part is a very, very good the, part. The part where you try to figure out what it means for you to decide to come out of it, like fight for your life kind of a thing. And mm-hmm. that's something that I think a lot of people who have talked to who have discussed whatever they've gone through in their life. When it comes to the topic of addiction, they had a personal revelation, no matter where it was on their journey, that they just could not continue to have that relationship with a, a substance so of any let, kind. So let's start there. David, tell us your personal story. Tell us your personal relationship with addiction and substances. And, and uh, you know, what's that been for you? Well, for starters, I want to talk really quick about something called first-person language. What first-person language means is when I talk about my past, I talk about myself as being someone in long-term recovery instead of being an addict or an alcoholic, just for the mind picture it paints. If I talk to somebody and say, hi, my name's David and I'm a grateful recovering addict, they probably picture me sitting on my bed with my arm tied off. If I tell them I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic, they probably picture me more as a passed out in an alley with a bottle of Ripple between my legs. So when I introduce myself, I always say, hi, my name's David, I'm in long-term recovery. What that means for me is I haven't drank or used a drug since January 31st of 2009. And because of that, I've been able to do some really cool things in my community and some really cool things to help other people. So that's about six years yeah. since you've drank or used drugs. Yes, sir. I like how you paint the picture. That's good because there is there is an image you have to kind of like go for and capture. And there are a lot of trigger words in any kind of conversation. Like if we talk about Christianity, any kind of Christian word or Christianese can be a trigger word for somebody else. Like you that maybe has a really bad experience with God. And so even if you say the word Bible or whatever, they'll just pray, I'll pray for you, just chunk and they're out. So similarly, there's probably a lot of terms when you're 
discussing addiction and alcoholism or whatever that you're trying to kind of repaint and redefine so that people can connect to it differently. I think that's a really good idea. So is there a way you want us to address it or speak about it or correct words that you think we should use when talking about it? I think talking about people who struggle with substance use or substance abuse is a lot better than saying addict. You know, people um, who struggle with it. Absolutely. Because that's what I tend to talk about. I tend to talk about. I actually talk about people. I say there are people who don't have a struggle. There's people who aren't in recovery yet. Mm-hmm. Then there's people who are working towards recovery and there's people in long-term recovery. Everything is hopeful. Absolutely. I'd rather focus on positives. I always say if you're talking to Donald Trump and he sits down to do business, he doesn't say, hi, my name is Donald Trump and I've filed bankruptcy four times, which he has. But why would you lead with that or talk to him about that? He'd rather talk about his successes. And when people talk to him, they generally refer to him by his successes, not his failures. That's good. I think, I think that's, that's really a, positive. I think that's amazing. And in fact, yeah. I love the fact that we're starting there because that's kind of why we do this is to tear down some of those labels, some of those walls, to be able to see each other just as fellow human beings in different places. And, and you know, we talk about the No Longer Safe series and what that has meant for different categories of people who feel labeled, who feel like they're set apart from the rest of the world, and then they get walls that come up between them and judgments and all those kind of things. And, and our goal is to tear down those walls and, and be able to build bridges. Well, stigma's real. You know, um, the organization that I have, Better Life and Recovery, we really kicked it off two Januarys ago. And the reason we did was I was reading an article about uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman passing away. And I looked at the comments that people had left on uh, the local newspaper, the news leader, and the KY3 website on Facebook. And the comments were like, who cares? Just another dead junkie. Whoa. You know what? We should give this stuff away for free. And that way these people could all kill themselves. And, and it really made, I don't know, wow. I guess it really made me realize that uh, we still have so much work to do, you know, especially in reducing stigma, and we reinforce it by the way we refer to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I do it. I judge other people, and a lot of times I judge people based on what they say to me. But you if know? you're going to start a relationship, like you said, you can lead with your, you know, the thing, the, the buzzword. You can lead with, I'm an addict. You can lead with, I've gone bankrupt. You can lead with something that's about yourself that could be like a downfall, but you do want to be helping that person understand that that's not where you are. That's just, or where you're going to be. That's not your goal. That's not what you're working towards. So you're, you're trying to change culture in the community and in the people themselves and how they look at themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's not just going into communities. It's also having things with people who are in recovery and talking to them and saying, listen, we're doing a huge disservice to ourselves in the community by the way we talk about ourselves. Yeah. You know. So, so would a better way to phrase the question than be, uh, tell us your recovery story? That would be amazing. Okay, Ooh, so let's do that. Tell us your recovery story. Um, I guess I started out, uh, my very first memory was being molested by a babysitter when I was probably three years old. Wow. And uh, I was told that I was disgusting and, I mean, she told all kinds of horrible things by my babysitter. And I never told my parents because I can remember my parents reading an article in the newspaper about uh, somebody being molested and them saying those people are disgusting. Mm -hmm. And I thought they were talking about me. Oh, wow. You know, at this time, uh, my father was an alcoholic. My mom was probably not the nicest person. You know, uh, she was probably, uh, I would say she was abusive physically and emotionally. And she left my dad the beginning of fifth grade and left us with her dad, who was probably one of the most evil people I've ever met. He was uh, the kind of person that would wake up and say, before this day's over, one of you guys is getting beat. 
Um, he would beat me to the point that sometimes he would call into work and say, hey, he's not going to come into school this week. He's going to help me in the field so that I could heal up before he'd let me go. Mm. Um, I remember telling the school once, and my grandpa was, he owned thousands of acres in Walnut Shade. He worked, retired from the highway department. He was really well respected. Mm. And they called him and talked to him. And he said, well, of course that's not going on. And that night he beat my brother and made me watch and said, if you tell anybody again, I'll kill your brother. Mm. So, so I turned to, uh, I became a bully at school. Uh, this is the 80s. Everybody that I went to school with, early 80s, everybody that I went to school with was uh, being raised by their parents. Their parents were married. Um, I felt completely different. Right. The clothes I wore weren't the coolest clothes. You know, I came in dressed in the country, and there was a lot of rich kids that went to Branson. And I didn't really feel like I fit in at all. And I found that if I picked on somebody less popular than me, that the kids would laugh and I would feel a little accepted. Right. So it created, it kind of turned me into a bully for a while. For some kind of a positive experience. You're looking for something. Yeah. Something to control because I was controlled. Right. You know, and I wanted something weaker Entrapped. than me that I could control too. Yeah. So my dad ended up getting custody of me the summer before seventh grade. I moved to my dad with, to my dad's who lived in Highland, Illinois, which is about half an hour out of East St. Louis. Okay. And uh, my dad worked overnights. The very first weekend that I was in town, my dad went to work to clean floors, and I took a walk around this. And uh, I ended up walking by the square. Kid called me over that was about my age. And when I came over, he uh, asked me if I smoked after a while. Um, we talked for a bit. He introduced himself. I introduced myself. We talked about being new in town. I talked about being new in town. We ended up being in the same grade. Um, bigger group called us over. We walk over to the bigger group, and we're talking. And one of the kids is like, hey, does he smoke? And I said, yeah, because I'd been smoking cigarettes since like fifth grade. Right. Well, it didn't happen to be cigarettes that they passed around. They passed around a joint. And I remember hitting it and coughing and they started laughing. And instantly that, that rage built up. And then the next kid, the kid that I was talking to, hit it and he started coughing and they laughed. And then I realized they weren't laughing at us. They were laughing with him because he was right. laughing too. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I fit in. Whoa. So your first reaction to being laughed at was like rage, but oh, then it just mad. flipped over to, oh, wait, no, I'm being accepted right now. Yeah. And so then you found your people. Yeah, I found my people. And, you know, I, I found that the more I smoked, the number I was. Mm. So the abuse, everything else, it kind of faded. Wasn't as like prevalent in your mind. Exactly. So did it get into anything harder as the years went on? Um, yeah. Or I mean, actually, that first weekend... That I met those kids. Uh, that was Friday. Saturday was the first time I was drunk. It was the first time I tried cocaine. It was Whoa. the first time I tripped acid. It was Dude. the first time I kissed a girl. It was the first time I slept with a girl. All wow. within like all within like a weekend. Yeah, like within forty eight oh hours. Gosh, it was a busy weekend. <laughs> what in the world? Yeah. I'd been really sheltered, living on a farm in the middle of nowhere with right? nobody around us. For like who miles. cares? Right? Like why wouldn't you want to have a good time? Why wouldn't you be like sure if it's going to be as simple as what I just experienced here? We'll go into the next thing. Well, and it was all encouraged. Right. You know, everybody I was around encouraged it, and I felt supported. And right. It was big Safe. kids and I wanted them, you know. Yep. So. Wow. And it was mostly marijuana and alcohol for a long time. I mean, I fought a lot. Uh, it was weird. I kind of stopped being a bully and I started fighting bullies about that time because I felt accepted and I started realizing how horrible it was when I didn't feel accepted. Mm. And there was, uh, I hung out with a bunch of stoners mm -hmm. and there's the way people looked at stoners. So. Yeah. Uh, I became kind of violent in that aspect. And would actually, but I actually found myself 
stepping in for that's the little guy yep you became a protector of what you're what like the safety that you had found yep. and the acceptance you had found you became a protector i went through something very very similar actually yeah your story there are echoes of of you know kind of yeah. how you've talked about your own yeah. story yeah i'm totally resonating with this well good i mean i didn't do cocaine and sleep with the woman all in the same weekend <laughs> thanks for clarifying <laughs> well that's good i'm glad <laughs> just Today. Just thank you. <laughs> no problem. Appreciate the clarity. <laughs> yep. That's why, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm working in the business because I got to, you know, speak clearly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice communication. Mm-hmm. So after that crazy weekend, then how did life go from there? Um, I would have told you it went really well, mm-hmm. you know, and then my dad got married and we moved to Southern Illinois, which is what I consider my home, a little town called El Dorado. And I continued, you know, smoking marijuana, drinking, many things came into play. I got myself. What came into play? Mini Mini thins. I don't know what that is. Back in the day, it was kind of like amphetamine pills. It's kind of like one of these in pill form. (laughs) Hey, don't pick all my monsters. (laughs) Danae pointing to a monster drink. (laughs) It was like an energy booster. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a precursor. They sold them in like the grocery or the gas station. It was just like a little caffeine. So it's over the counter, legit. Yeah. Okay. Think of amphetamine. Yeah. So we moved there. I ended up getting into a lot of trouble. I. Ended up moving for several reasons back to my mom's, who lived in the Ozarks. I'm probably the only knucklehead I know that moved to Missouri to get away from drugs and trouble. (laughs) (laughs) So I moved to to Branson, started going to Hollister in my senior year. In my senior year, I discovered methamphetamine. Uh And needless to say, I did not finish my senior year because, I mean, and I dropped out with all A's. I mean, I was a straight A student. Hmm. There in Hollister. I mean, A's, B's, but I I think I was straight A's when I dropped out um, because it got in the way of my partying. Right. Um, Drug use, of course, turned to a way for me to be able to support the drug use, Mm -hmm. which led to breaking and entering and burglary. And I ended up turning 21 in prison. Long story short. Um, By this time, I mean, I had one bad experience with alcohol. I had to get my stomach pumped. It was the first time that I, I was what you would consider dead. But that happened many times over the years. Um, where, like, your heart stopped? Where, like, my heart stopped, uh, things like that. Um, I got out of prison at 21 after about 16 months. Um, when I got out of prison that night, I was drunk half an hour after I got out of prison. And I had a needle in my arm for the very first time that night. Wow. Um, I'd hooked up with some people who said, hey, I've got some friends, and they will. you can hook up with them. They'll teach you how to manufacture dope. If you hook up with them. So I showed up to Springfield and I hooked up with them and it was kind of downhill from there. I ended up moving back to Branston about a year after I got out of prison. Had a car wreck, drinking and driving behind the wheel. I flew a car 97 feet, got 32 feet in the air, died three times in the ambulance. Um, And you're still here. (laughs) And I continued to party. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you would think that these things would scare you away. And I remember my dad coming to me and talking to me in the hospital room and him going, do you think this will change? I'm like, Dad, if that's not going to kill me, nothing will. Right. You know, oh, that was my attitude. Yeah. So the attitude, the attitude wasn't, oh, I got to stop doing this, so it's this stuff like, stopped happening. It's like, I'm, I'm invincible. Can't yeah. you tell? Look at me. Absolutely. Right. And then mm. also just the excitement of living. At least, and I, won't, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for myself. The excitement for living is like you're in the moment. So it's like your moment's the only thing that really matters. It's not foresight. It's not you know, just existing in that one spot. So. Thinking about, you know, living or dying, it's just like, meh, whatever, whatever happens, I'm, that's how it was for me. Do you think there was anything in that time, in that moment in your life, that could have snapped something in your brain? You know, that could have, you know, got you thinking about things in a different perspective? Yeah, when was that moment? I mean, we tried 
everything. We tried probation, parole, house arrest, scared straight, um, prison, residential rehab, outpatient rehab, medication, counselor, psychiatrist, psychologist. Nobody, so, nothing I heard ever resonated. Yeah. You know, I mean, but a lot of times it was people coming in that a lot of people never had the struggles I had. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember sitting there talking to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist going, well, I kind of know what you're going through. And I, I remember thinking, what, did you have to change a tire once all by yourself? I mean, how do you understand what I'm going through? You yeah. Know, um, and then you're talking to your parents again. So because at that point, you know, like you said, you would you in the hospital. I estranged myself from my parents at that time. Yeah. I, after I got out of prison, I pretty much cut ties with my parents. But they showed up whenever you got into your accident. When I got in my accident, my dad showed up. Yeah. You know, he he showed up right before I went to prison. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I bought a cab company one night and then went on the run. You know, I was drinking and driving, hit like five cabs that were parked. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then took off on the run. That's why I ended up going to prison. I had all those charges and then I disappeared for a year after uh, hit and run. Oh, so, man. I'll always remember I went to my probation officer after not being there for a year and my PO walked up and he's like, Mr. Stoker, what are you doing here? And I'm like, where you go to prison, John? And he said... Well, have a seat. <laughs> you know, um, let's talk. <laughs> being on the run was one of the most exhausting things I've ever done in my life. I finally got so tired, I just went in and turned myself in. Whoa! You know, and knew I was going to prison. I was ready for it. And yeah. Unfortunately, it kind of gave me a little more credibility. You know, oh, to be well, to be in the streets again. Yeah. Yeah. On the streets, you know. I mean, I went to prison, so obviously I was willing to take my time and right. yada yada yada. So it actually bumps respect on the streets. So after your car accident. I don't know how much of time and any important information that we need to touch on definitely do. But like, when do you have that, like that moment in your mind when you're like, I'm ready to live different. I'm ready to live like as a, a human being without any substance addition. <laughs> like, when did you decide to, it came in a couple pieces. Um, I will tell you over the next few years up until I was 29, up until I was 29, I ended up dying a couple more times. Uh, I ended up, slashing both my wrists and my sister found me unconscious in a bathroom and had to call an ambulance. Uh, I OD'd three times, woke up in hospitals. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that's why maybe that's why I decided to straighten up. I died eight times. So I figured I might only have one life left, (laughs) but, uh, or that you're here to do something and you're going to keep coming back. (laughs) You know, I have no idea. Um, I actually had a drug deal that went bad and, uh, one of my friends got shot in the leg. I shot a kid in the shoulder and the next day when I found out the kid that I'd shot had lived, I, got kind of upset that Mm. I hadn't killed him. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized, I think finally the road I was going down, because even though I did a lot of evil stuff, you know, and a lot of people who struggle with substance use do a lot of evil things. Um, Mm -hmm. We're not evil people. You know, we do what we need to, to survive in the situation we're in. I mean, when you walk into a house and you don't know whether you'll leave that house alive or not because of the people that are in that house, and that's a pretty... Common, common thing yep you know especially in the methamphetamine game yeah um you learn to react in different ways i mean i'm a nice guy i'll take a punch in the jaw and look at somebody and say hey we don't really <laughs> when i was using i mean i was first to attack all the time right you know because you had to and you had to make sure that no matter what anybody did you something happened to them because of that because if somebody took advantage of you even if it's a friend and people see that then th- they will all try to take advantage of you wow but uh so it's kind of like that moment whenever you walked up to that group for that first time and you found acceptance. Now that group were the ones that were potentially going to be attacking you. Like it, it almost went the 
pendulum swing from you coming into good relationships to all of a sudden finding that you're around people that could devour you. I tell people my friends would have helped me hide bodies. But if somebody would have given them the right amount of money, they probably would have helped hide my body. Yeah. You know, um, but I ended up, that ended up happening. And uh, I thought about it. I took a couple of days and I ended up showing up at my mom's house. I told everybody I was going on a run to Houston and got a rental car, a duffel bag, and I left everything I owned. I was buying a house. I was Whoa. buying a vehicle. And I knew that if I kept those things, I'd never be able to pay for them. And I'd already learned once I got out of rehab and... When my bills came due and I had to pay it, I only knew one way to one way to take care of those bills. So I right. went back to, to hustle. So so I showed up at my mom's doorstep with a duffel bag and I tell her, you know, I have three choices. You can either let me stay here and I can get back on my feet, or I'm either gonna kill myself from the drugs or I'm gonna get busted by the cops again and I'll make them kill me because I won't go back to prison. And wow. she opted to let me stay there. Um, stayed there for about six months, got on my feet, ended up moving in with some roommates. And I found out that the GED that I got when I was in prison, yeah. I scored high enough to get a scholarship. So I started going to OTC nice. and I started working in restaurants. And there you go. Everybody I worked with and everybody I went to school with drank. And I started drinking. And very soon I had, if there wasn't an after party, it was at my house. Mm. So there was drinking going on at my house every single night. Well, there's drinking by me every night, late into the night. And if you fast forward a couple of years into it, I mean, I'm still going to school. I'm still waiting tables. And sometimes I'd wake up four or five o'clock in the morning and have to drink to get the shakes to go away so that I could go back to sleep. Oh, wow. So, so you weren't going beyond alcohol, but you took alcohol to the limits. I took alcohol to the limits. Yeah. And, uh, and that happened for years. You know, um, but but I, I stayed off drugs so I could look at people and go, well, you know, at least right. I'm not like those people. You know, I think everybody does that. Yeah. You know, so people that drink look at people that do drugs and they go, well, you know, I'm at not least doing I'm not that. doing that. Yep. And then people that say smoke meth go yeah, snort meth. say, well, at least I'm not smoking it off foil. And then they start smoking it and they're like, well, at least I'm not shooting it. And then they start shooting and they're like, well, at least I'm not doing heroin. And then they start doing heroin. They're like, well, at least I'm not doing jinkum, which if you don't know what that is, look it up. It's disgusting. It's people huffing something for the methane gas it creates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that the type of people who have their fingers freeze to the cans? No, these are people that they take excrement in bags. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> yeah, it's called jinkum. So, you know, you can always look at those people and go, well, at least Whoa. I'm not that bad. Yeah. I missed the first reference. Went someplace else. No, I was there. Wow. Yeah, well, <laughs> you were probably, were, you, you were probably you talking there. more about Freon and things yes, like that. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. So, so I started drinking and it got really bad. And then I, now I'm working on my master's degree um, after getting uh, an associate's and a double bachelor's. So you're, and you're drinking the whole time. And I'm drinking the whole time. I have a son now that's, he's about six months old whenever my dad committed suicide wow and my dad was my superhero my dad was my dad and my sister were the two people that no matter what i did always supported me no matter what you know i mean they were there i mean my mom's been there but my dad was always there with good stuff to say to my sister was always there i'd be dead if it wasn't for my sister probably multiple times over you know um and when my dad died it took my drinking to a whole new level and I broke up with my son's mother and she started, she was, she was angry. She was hurt because I broke up with her. So she wasn't letting me see my son. Didn't and help. then finally she started letting me see my son once or twice a month, 
with her family surrounding us, at, we like I was going to run off with them. Right. And I say it's probably a good thing they were there because I would have ran off with them. That was my boy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, and I had some friends invite me to church, and I laughed at them. And uh, it's a kid that I'd worked with for years um, at the restaurant, and he invited me a couple weeks later. He's like, listen, I know you're, you're going through a rough time. Me, You know, his name's Nate. He's like, me and Becca, his wife, just want to... Just want you to come hang out with us. Yeah. And I laughed at him. And a couple of weeks later, his wife came up and she was like, hey, you know, I know Nate's been inviting you. I know you don't want to go, but we're having a free barbecue and a live band after church next Sunday. Love it if you'd come out. And uh, I tell people I run for two reasons, from spiders and to barbecue. So I was like, <laughs> barbecue? Okay, I can do that. It's a great life motto. <laughs> it really is. It's how I live mine. Did you see, did you, this is a total aside, did you see the guy that ended up catching a gas pump on fire this weekend because there was a spider in his car? No. No. He, he <sighs> got a lighter out to try to kill this spider and ended up catching the gas pump on fire. He was so frightened of the spider. I saw there was somebody that jumped out of a moving vehicle we'll and about killed somebody. Yeah. No, it didn't really? kill. I thought it killed somebody. No, I thought it injured one of the okay. kids on the school what bus. What if somebody passed away? Wow, I guess it could be. I may we have heard wrong, too. We haven't looked in on it. We yeah, we haven't checked it. since it happened. But. but Because of a spider. Yeah, I'd heard that, too. Also, take note, those of you who are building a church and want to work on your marketing, add barbecue. <laughs> Barbecues. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally went, and I remember uh, the very first song I ever heard when I stepped in church was uh, Third Day. Uh, crowd to Jesus and they actually talked about ad- addiction in the song you know and that kind of resonated because I walked in there expecting to get judged I mean my parents were very hypocritical um, Christians like they would scream and cuss at each other in the car on the way to church and then as soon as we got hi brother so and so how you doing beautiful day isn't it you know and that was my vision of Christians and then I'd been molested by a babysitter from our church. And then, you know, I would have people that I was doing dope with that would scream at me that I was going to go to hell because I wasn't saved and they're sitting there shooting up with me. Mm. So, I mean, a lot of hypocrites and a lot of judgmental attitudes and that's what I expected. And I didn't really hear it. Um, And then they invited me. They said during first service, they had what was called a celebrate recovery. And they said, hey, if you want to go check that out, you can. And it wasn't a true by the by the book, Celebrate Recovery, but it was a group of people that had life struggles that got together and talked. And I told them I'd come back and check it out, and I did the next weekend. And I kind of liked it because by this time I was working on a practicum at a treatment facility through my master's degree um, as an alcoholic. Whoa. And I knew if I went anywhere to one of the other uh, meetings in the community, I'd probably run into somebody that I saw at treatment, so I couldn't go there. Mm. So I started going to church once or twice a month on Sundays when I was off because I got to hang out with a couple of people that genuinely cared about me. Right. Not about whether or not I was going to go party with them that night or what I had to offer or if I was going to buy them drinks. They cared about me for me. And I wasn't really used to that. Yeah. You know, so I'd go and hang out with them and I'd go to that during first service. And I did that for about six months. I never, as I said, I never drank the (laughs) Kool-Aid. Um, I was starting to kind of like God, but I still couldn't stand Christians. Yeah. I went through that phase. We hear that a lot. Yeah. (laughs) We hear that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's because not many people, you know, are the hands and feet of Christ. Yeah. They're more the hammer and the chisel of condemnation. We're all flawed and we all, I mean, just, you know. Yeah. I think it just, the Christianity used to be a culture where you, you were told that you had to kind of keep your face. I think that used to be the culture. 
and I don't think it's the same way as much anymore, I think but it's still there. Yeah, I definitely think there's some good and some negative changes. How about that? So I go to church for about six months every once in a while, and then one night I, uh, I'm leaving the bar, and as I pull out of the bar, a police officer pulls out behind me, and instantly I know if he pulls me over, you're not gonna. I'm gonna get a DUI. Yeah. If I get a DUI, they're gonna kick me out of my practicum. If they kick me out of my practicum, they're gonna kick me out of grad school. Like it's just this instant. And I was. Oh man. I did that foxhole prayer, you know. I mean, and I'm agnostic. And at the time, I was actually atheist, and using meth actually helped me become agnostic. But that's a completely different story. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember I was just like, God, if you're real, you let me not get pulled over. I will start going to church every Sunday. <laughs> and I took a corner, and he turned with me. And it was like, God, if you're real, you let me not get pulled over. I will start going to church every Sunday, and, and I'll never drink again. And every time I take a corner and he pulls with me, I added something. <laughs> you know. <laughs> like God's waiting for the perfect bargain. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, uh, that's kind of what we do, though, I think, when we, if we reach the end of our rope. Right. And as I turned onto my street, he kept going. And mind you, by this time, I was going to stop smoking cigarettes, stop having premarital sex, stop getting into fights, <laughs> stop cussing, stop drinking, and start going to church every Sunday. God, I've given about all I can, man. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm out. But uh, I pulled into my driveway, and I did what I would do a lot of nights when I drank a bunch, um, which I passed out in my driveway. The difference, when I woke up in the morning, I actually remembered the night before. Mm. And I went in. Hopped in the shower. It just happened to be Super Bowl Sunday. I had plans to go to a Super Bowl party at one of my best friend's houses. And so I hop into the shower and I'm sitting there thinking about everything I'm supposed to give up. And that voice that I've heard so many times just says, you know, why even try? Mm. You know what? You've been you've been doing this for 25 years and yeah. you've never quit successfully. Why, why try? You're yeah. just going to fail. So I finished taking my shower and I hopped into my car and I started driving to my friend's house. I was beat before I ever started. And as I'm driving, um, the Rolling Stones come on the radio, which is the best way to get me to change the channel. I can't stand the Rolling Stones. I don't know what it is. but uh, So maybe they're partially, partially to be thanked <laughs> because uh, Rolling Stones come on the radio and I'm like, oh, this stinks. So I start flipping through channels. And I come to a dead spot. So I'm like, oh, I wonder what's on here. And the first words out of the speaker are, I wish I could, I wish you could see me now. I wish I could show you how I'm not who I was. It's a song by a guy named Brandon Heath called oh. I'm Not Who I Was. In a voice that I've never heard before. It said, turn the car around. You can do this. And I <gasps> pulled over and I, I bawled. What? You know, I cried like a baby. And uh, Sweet. I know. And then I turned my car around. I didn't end up going. And I haven't used since. You, you heard know. the other voice. Yeah. Woo! That's so. exciting. That's exciting. Well, it's interesting too because you, I, I've been there before too in a similar situation where like you just get so used to the same voice and you know it really, really well. And then something else happens and just like, wait, that's not the same. It doesn't feel the same. It doesn't hit me the same. It's not like it's not shining in me the same. What was that? Because that's not, that wasn't me. That was something outside of myself. I get that a lot. People ask me now that I. I'm a Christian. You know, uh, they asked me, so how do you know when it's God vo God's voice? And I'm like, when it's telling me to do the right thing, that's God's <laughs> voice. Because I struggle with, there's a comedian, Mark Lundholm, he calls it first thought wrong. I say for me, it's more like first five thoughts wrong. <laughs> you know, the first five things that cross my head are probably not things I should do. Or say out loud. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just keep them to yourself. <laughs> yeah. People would be a little bit alarmed. How's that going for you today? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I have a hard time. I'm, I have a hard time. 
I think it's good, though. I mean, I, I, I think it's good to speak honestly. And there's a difference between, you know, saying things that are honest and saying Here's things thing. that are wrong. You can find a group of people that you can be your raw, honest self with and not right. have to fear right. the in, really uncomfortable, judgmental parts. Because, but there, that's been my, my journey has been learning when is the right time to tell people what I'm really thinking. Mm. Because some people are never able to handle it. Because it just hits them the wrong way, no matter my best intention. Intention, you know, mm-hmm. it's just never gonna like sure. fully be absorbed the way that I want it to be absorbed. But you know, you find your little outlets here and there. Like, okay, I guess I can tell the story now because enough time has passed. And what bothers me is that age seems to be the only thing that makes sense to people. I can't tell stories like to a certain degree. But like, if I'm sixty, nobody cares because you're sixty. You can say, why? Why do I have to wait until I'm old to say what I want? I don't understand. Well, it's not just till you're old. There is also an element of you're only allowed to talk about your failings after they've been a certain amount of time behind you, too. Like if. I'm if, not even talking about feelings. I'm no, just talking no, about I, random I, weird thoughts. No, I have. I was I was shifting. I was shifting into saying, oh. like, you talk about you know, uh, since 2009. You know, was the when that happened, when that experience happened. You know, um, how how time allows allows unfortunately that judgment of people. The time is what they're waiting for. They're waiting for that five years, ten years to go. Okay, I think you're okay. Free. Now you're free. Yeah, yeah. Something uh, like or that. Or what really bothers me is when you get in with a new group of people, especially if they're like super Christian, like not in the good way, like the judgmental way, and they they dig in. They want to know your sins and they want to know that you've gotten pain and they want to see your badges of honor. And you don't have to show them to people. It's mm. like that's not for you. Like I can tell you that I've struggled with things in the past and that I'm over it. You don't have to know about the depth of my struggle. There's a couple of things that happen in, in, in church culture whenever I go visit, visit a church. In one of my most uncomfortable ones is, so tell me about yourself. Because I want to tell you about myself in the moment, you know, and sure, that's fine. But like, if you really dig in and you really want to know who I am, I'm probably willing to go there with you. But what do you do with that information? Like, how does that change? Like, I just... I'm tired of like it feeling like, okay, well, let me find your sin so I can help you. It's like, I don't need you necessarily to assist me in that way. But at the same time, like you're, you're supposed to be sin exchanging. Well, for example, so you've been talking to David for a while about, you know, your experiences. If you were to sit down in front of, oh, I don't know, a pristine, all in white, well put together group of AG, I was raised AG, I can slam a little bit here, um, <laughs> women all together maybe they were all prims maybe they've all graduated through that system and you were to just lay out your life story they would be rocked do you know what i'm saying like some of them would be just totally totally rocked i remember cussing in front of one of my girlfriends for the first time who was like raised deep in the ag church and she was like it's okay that you did that tonight because i apologize to her <laughs> it's okay that you did that tonight i need to be around real people and it's like there's something that shifted in our culture where we just were realizing as Christians that it doesn't mean that you don't open up to people. It means that you're not immediately thinking that you have to have people at arm's length because they're unsafe because they've been through sin. Cause we're not all changing cards. I'm not taking your cards like a card game and saying, okay, well I'm going to hand you over how many people I slept with before I got married. And you know, I'm going to hand you that yeah. I smoked cigarettes a few weeks ago. Like, Go fish. Yeah. I'm like, you would lose. <laughs> um. <laughs> right. Let's, that's just not what it's supposed to be about. You know, right. What it is about. And what I love what you're talking about, David, is that in your honesty and in your like rawness about what you've experienced, the people who have been in that depth too 
confused about whether they're loved or not or confused about their place and you know misrepresented and abused in in ways that you just can't understand the impact of it from a kid all the way you know through there's still things that like my friends have to deal with and stuff but you're you're going through your journey and your openness about it it allows people to have a real relationship that is the image of christ which is just hanging out and loving on each other i uh I shared my story and I like to tell people this story. I like to tell them a couple. I just share my story. And at the end, um, I see this woman coming up and she's probably in her 70s, pillar of the church. And she walks up to me and I'm thinking to myself, uh oh. And she looks me dead in the eyes and she says, Did you really used to deal drugs? And I was like, Yes, I did. And she said, Jesus is amazing, isn't he? And gave me a hug and walked off. (laughs) And a lot of times that has been my experience. I expected to be met with Mm -hmm. judgment and everything else. But here's what I know. There's 23 and a half million people in long-term recovery. There's another 22 to 24 million people that are still in active substance use. I'm not good at math, so I'll round it up to 50 million. And I'll say each one of those people biologically has a mom or a dad. So there's 100 million. And each one of them probably has a brother and a sister because some will have 12 and some will have none. So let's just average it and say two. There's another 100 million. And each one of them, no matter how miserable they are, probably has two friends. By my math, that's 350 million people, which is the population of the United States. So you're hard-pressed to find anybody that hasn't been impacted in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to be more open about it. Yeah. But we've made it this taboo thing not to talk about, you know, when I talk in a church, a lot of times I lead with, hey, we're going to talk about a lot of things here you don't hear about inside of a church. And that's OK. Yeah. But you I know. think it should it should belong. And, and that's where we title this podcast No Longer Safe. It's kind of like a note on the door that says anyone is welcome to come in and talk and anyone is welcome to come in and to have this level of openness. But it might not be right for you right now or it might not be right for your friends. So. Ask a couple questions before you get started. Do you want to hear really deep, broken things that have happened to people that they didn't have a choice in and happened because they had a choice and they decided to make this choice and it it resulted in whether positive or negative, you know? Well, and I think, too, we think a lot of times tearing down these walls is going to we have this idea that it can be an easy process. And it's not. It's a dangerous process. Tearing, you know, getting deep with people and vulnerable with people is scary and it's dangerous both ways so i, I feel think- like tearing down walls is a little like every time you say that i've been averse to it today i feel like it's mostly just choosing to like let them down because it's somebody's mm-hmm. choice to let a wall down so it's just that's the depth part of it right sure. it's just to kind of sure. go i'm somebody who can remove so many filters and live and speak on a level of fearlessness because my person that i'm doing life for is god that's it's just me and him and mm-hmm. i'm i'm hoping that i'm doing the right thing by sharing and showing and putting my hand to work. I hope I'm getting it close to the way that I feel like I'm supposed to be, you know, living my life. That's something that I'll find out at some point, I hope. But I think that's fair. I think it's more appropriate to think of it as releasing the walls. You know, yeah. you, you release those judgments. You release those things right. that keep us apart. To me, it's a drawbridge. Yeah, maybe you it's know, a drawbridge. You know, there's a moat. I mean, mm-hmm. I can lower it down and let people in or not. Right. You know, but I, uh, I say there's three ways that we live. One of those ways is like a wall where we let nothing in, nothing out. Mm-hmm. Another way is kind of like a sieve where we let some things out, but we keep some things in. And then the other way I like to call it the eight mile method. You know, if you've ever seen the movie eight mile, 
at the end, they get into a rap battle. Basically, in a rap battle, what I'm supposed to do is talk the most smack about you. You talk the most smack about me. And whoever wins, you know, whoever talks the most smack about the other person wins. Well, whenever Eminem, who plays the lead character, whenever he, he wins the flip, he chooses to go first. And people are like, what are you doing? You never go first because you can't react off what the other person has said. And instead, he gets up there and he's like, you know what? My mom's a whore. My best friend shot himself in the foot. <laughs> yeah. I'm white trash. Yeah. And when he, I'm Brady Bunch. And when he gets done, he's like, now what are you going to say about me? Because you already said it yourself. You know, if I let everybody know, I take that power away exactly from everybody right. else because there's nothing anybody can bring up. That's not out there. When people are like, well, I heard you used to cook meth. You know what? You I've told that, that story in front of thousands of people. <laughs> you actually probably heard me. I was that, I was the one on that podcast. <laughs> you know, so I think whenever we share our stories, not mm-hmm. only does it help other people. You know, I always say we're hope dealers. We have an ability to give hope to people that are completely hopeless by sharing their struggles with victory at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, but also it helps us because I get to share that weight and other people get to help me carry it instead of me having to carry it all by myself. Because every time you really share that part of yourself, the weighty part of yourself or the sin part of yourself or whatever you've been through the junk and you hand it over to someone and it's just a light load for everybody, you're released and everybody else is more equally balanced. I feel, you know, I feel that way. When I started a ladies group on accident, one of the things that came up in conversation all the time was, you know, being transparent is so important and being vulnerable is so important. And, you know, it's so nice to find people to be that way with. And then it turned into, but how do you do it carefully and safely? How do you do it in the right places? And so for you, you found a platform really talking to people who are willing to lower the drawbridge and and do their eight mile, you know, where they're like, this is what's going on. And you're boldness encouraged other people to say their truth because it's hard sometimes to admit when you've been sexually abused when you've been you know it, those are hard those are hard deep places especially when you're a kid being a child that I, I was molested as a child and I remember too feeling that this weird sort of this is somehow something that's going on and I'm a part of it and I'm not at fault because I didn't understand fault and blame at the time because I was too little but you know like this is something that's happening and this is just like my life this is normal it wasn't abusive and like uh, I wasn't being abused physically um, in that similar vein. It was more curiosity stuff, but it still like changed and informed my life later. And I felt weird about it later when I re- like remembered it. I was like, right. oh, this makes so much more sense as to how I became this person that I am. But I don't want to tell anybody. But, like, why? Why not? Why not say something, you know, to anybody? So I ended up telling my parents about it and they felt terrible. I was like, I don't, I'm not saying this so that you, you know, are feeling bad. I'm telling you because I think it's going to help you understand how I became the person that I am. Right. <laughs> and it's actually a cool thing. Like I'm whatever it happened, like that's a long time ago, but this is how I became to be who I am today. Isn't that cool? It's like a little part of me that you didn't even know about, you know? See, I never shared about, uh, the sexual abuse. I carried that and I've been sharing ever since I started going to Missouri state. I shared about the methamphetamine and everything else. Even when I was an alcoholic, um, I had professors that would have me come in, uh, criminology and sociology that would have me come in to talk to their classes. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm cleaning, now that I'm completely sober and in recovery, I actually, my old probation officer teaches a class down at College of the Ozarks that I go and talk to. Cool. I love that campus. But I never shared about the sexual abuse. And then I was introduced, one of my friends that I went to high school with back in Branson, I uh, introduced me to her daughter. Her daughter's name's Ellie. And at the time, Ellie was nine. I want to say when she was seven, she was molested by her best friend's stepdad. 
when she was eight, she told her mom. By the time she was nine, she was going into elementary schools here in Missouri and sharing her story. They hold general assemblies. Mm. Uh, at 11, she started a men's prison ministry where she goes into men's prisons and talks. And I'm sitting there looking at this nine-year-old, and I'm just like, man, she has more courage than I do. You know, I learned a valuable lesson from her, and that was, you know what? Be vulnerable because I was worried about what people can think. Yeah, She's sharing it in elementary schools, and I don't know any meaner brand not because they choose to be mean but because yeah. they don't think before they say anything yeah. they don't have kind of like us yeah oh, you were talking about i'm kind of the same way i don't have a filter <laughs> i call it brutal honesty that's yeah and a lot of kids struggle with that too it's yeah. not that i want to be mean but i don't know that this is not the right thing to say right and i'm like man i'm not going to have that nine-year-old work a better 12th step than i am <laughs> you know so you got competitive <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know taking and, it back and it's awesome. I mean, I've been able to have her come and speak at a couple of my events now. And, you know, she ended up uh, one of the one year she won the American Red Cross Everyday Hero of the Year Award. Wow. I mean, she's this amazing little girl. Aw, that's awesome. You and know. I think that it's good that you are because there are a lot of males who are sexually abused and don't talk about it because it's somehow tied into a slam against their masculinity. And there's a whole other topic of conversation there. But I think it's a good thing. I mean, your boldness in, in your story, it, I, it reminds me of one other time that someone told her story. Uh, she sat down in a ladies group and told her story and it was just the whole room was just like shocked by it because she was just gut level, brutal, honest. This is all the things that have happened to me over the last six years. And I remember her saying, I don't even know where I'm going to go tonight. I don't even know where I'm going to live. And, you know, we're all there like, yeah, you know, I just got married or, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to use my crock pot. And <laughs> guys, thank you so much. These cookies are so good. And she's like. I moved here. I this happened. This happened. This happened. Um, I don't have a family. I don't have anywhere to like. We're all like, <laughs> well, welcome to your new home. Like, we're gonna take care of you. And she became really good friends with several people. And her life totally flipped. And as you're talking, I'm just remembering like, I'll never forget that moment. And that's really when things can change when you get that sort of gut level, honest, and have the bravery to share your story. It's exciting because it kind of makes me curious what's going to happen with this series. I think everybody has their story. Yeah. You know, and I, I think we get this idea that, that we're the only one that has that deep, dark story in us that where we came from. And they're all different for sure. But every one of us has something that, you know, has formed us to be who we are, a struggle or... Mm -hmm you know, whoever it might be. So I, I think we just have to get past that thing where we look at other people and go, oh, they've got it all together. They're not going to want to hear Or, oh, you know, their my story's junk. better. Yeah. <laughs> I have, yeah. I have clients that they won't share. And they're like, well, you know, because I've never been through that. Yeah. And I always, even with, we call we call people that uh, have never struggled with a substance use, like normies. You know, <laughs> even when I'm talking with normies, you know, um, I have seldom if ever met somebody that hadn't had life punch at least one hole in their soul. Right. Yeah. And what I found is that a lot of times I, for me, I, I duct taped mine up with substance use. I find other people duck it up with, uh, you know, they use duct tape to fix their hole, which doesn't fix their hole, but that's a whole nother story, you know, but they use hoarding, I, hoarding, uh, eat, uh, food eat, addiction, yeah. gambling, or shopping, say, the church, they'll duct tape Whoa. it up with religion. Ooh. I'm just saying it's possible. Ooh, it's getting real up in here. <laughs> I'd say that's unfortunately pretty accurate. That's actually I think that's accurate too. You know. You can really use anything. It's 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 finding an outlet where you don't have to be your honest with who you really are. I think when you really meet in your own personal life when you really have that moment when you 
are okay with being who you are and knowing that you're being observed and loved anyway by God because he can see in on our lives even though and, and you're not afraid and you're not feeling bad and you're because he's not doing that like God doesn't send those feelings of you need to change who you are to be loved his is I love you exactly how you are let's do life together and and whatever changes come I'm gonna hand them to you in the right way you just my yoke is light you you know but let's just get you healthy but like, it's still yoke it's and still people forget that sometimes yes. you know uh, people think that because I have friends I was atheist and agnostic most of my life and mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends that are atheist and agnostic and I remember well you know what you got saved because it makes your life easier and oh, I'm like no. I'm accountable for every single thing I do now <laughs> that's not easy at no, all it's... this is way harder before Thank I you. didn't care what I did Thank I you. was uh, uh the word is escaping me uh, a hedonist. Basically, I lived my life for what pleased me right now. Worst case scenario, the only people that could hold me accountable were the cops. If they caught me doing what I was doing. You know, mm-hmm. if I woke up without, but, other side of that, if I woke up without a hangover, I wasn't dope sick, and I was with a cute girl whose name I'm, I might or might not know, that was probably the best my life was ever going to get. And when I died, I turned to dust. And knowing that nothing that I did in this life truly mattered was so depressing. Right. You know, now I know that everything I do, I will one day be accountable for. And I'm okay with that, mm-hmm. you know, but it puts a lot more pressure on the things I do. It makes you be active and aware and present. And then whenever he says, okay, I want you to do this thing. You're like, but I don't know that I want to do that thing. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have that conversation. And he's like, eh, I think you should do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They have a, I think it's called a God's perfect something. It's by a group called the skit guys. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen it where he's got the chisel and the hammer and he's taking yeah. pieces off that? He's like, no, 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 not that part. No, yeah. not that part. I'm not ready yet. Right. And he's like, oh, so were we going to do this your way or God's way? Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, I can definitely see that a lot with people. And the example, you know, for me, I always said Paul was like my brother from another mother. You know, um, for the good I want to do, I do not do. No, it is evil. I do not want to do. That is what I do. Jesus died to save sinners, of which I am the worst. But he also said, all have sinned. You know, nobody's mm-hmm. perfect. Yeah, we all have our cards. I always saw that the church is a group of perfect people. And I say I was kind of like a black sheep of my family. And when I entered into a true church, not the legalistic church that a lot of people know, but when I entered a true church that loved like Jesus, um, I felt like I joined a flock. You know, I'm like, I'm home. Whoa. And it was amazing. I wonder if I'm ever going to have that feeling. You know, uh, <laughs> I had that feeling and then... Uh, Multiple years later, that exact same church, after a blog that I wrote, Uh-oh. invited me out to eat and asked if they could help me find a new church. So, you know, um, we have things in our... going to be that way. I'm just telling you, <laughs> groups, groups of people... True story. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly why I don't commit to churches. I just... But you know, you know what? Let me just say they're this. Human. That's, ex- that's exactly uh, why I do commit to churches. I know. Because you, there isn't a perfect one. This and, is my favorite conversation maybe that we've ever had is this one we're about to start. I just know I know people in the church are going to hurt me. I know that it's, you know, unfair. that it's unfair. And Misrepresenting Christ. All of us are human. So I don't, I'm not out there looking for the perfect church because there isn't one. So I commit to the body where I'm at knowing that it's a body that is trying to serve Christ in his heart. As, you know, as best they can. And that makes sense to me. But I see more good, you know, as much as people rail on the church. Um, I did uh, psychological first aid after the Joplin tornado. 
if it wasn't for the churches, I mean, Convoy of Hope, Compassion International, yep. I mean, church after church after church, tent set up, giving away food, mm-hmm. water, clothes, bedding. I didn't see any, I didn't see the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster or, you know, the That's Invisible the Pink Unicorn. I didn't to. see any secularist organizations there. Yeah. You know, um, as much as, as even I disliked Christians at one time, you know what, they do... A lot of good. I love my Christian friends. I love them. I never thought I would have Christian friends. I do now. They're fantastic. They're great. They're even so great that I could message them that I'm struggling with something and they hit me with the proverbial two by four. Danae, are you sure you're not being prideful? Is this really, you know, like they ask the hard questions. I want friends that will ask the hard questions. I don't want somebody to come around and sugarcoat it and pat me on the back and tell me that God loves me and everything's going to be okay. I want them to like make sure that I'm like, all right, what am I doing? How am I doing? Get to know me, that kind of stuff. So I've got some really, really great friends, but we don't all go to the same place at the same time. We hang out, but we don't all like assemble at a church function all the Mm -hmm. time. Well, can I tell you what? Most of the organizations that I'm a piece of, we do all get together. Yeah. Not just church. Like outside of? Talking about uh, outside of, uh, there was a recent study. Well, it wasn't recent now. It was a couple years old, and they looked at happy people, and they found that happy people tend to have three things in common. Um, One of them is they get adequate exercise. They get adequate sleep and they go to church. And that's in no way saying go to church. But when you belong to a social group where you're not there, you're missed and you feel connected and necessary. I have that. Okay. Well, there I, you that, go. That describes my life like perfectly. Even the sleep. I get good sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, people need that social connectedness. We do. I mean, we're not. It's why solitary confinement over times cruel and unusual punishment because yeah. we weren't made to be, to be alone yeah yeah i find like when i when i do visit churches there's usually a couple things that have happened one i've been invited and they've got us like a speaker or something kind of fun going i'll go to their church um or like i'll be like i think i'm supposed to go to this church and i'll go visit that church and i'll have this great message and corporate worship is there and everything like that and then i just go back to my to my life my husband and I wonder if we ever have kids, if that'll change. Like, then we're going to have to, like, go knit ourselves in somewhere where we can have them be social. Because that's what that was my social life when I was a kid growing up. Yeah, me was too, for inside sure. the church. And I really found value in that. And I wouldn't want that to be something that they didn't experience. Oh, absolutely. And I know so, my boys found, you know, find extreme value in having that group of yeah, friends. And yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's really powerful. So I we've actually talked about it. Like, if we have kids that we will be grafting into an environment um, and both just kind of have to agree because... I like certain church services that Justin, my husband, doesn't like. And then the ones he likes are the ones I get really uncomfortable in. So when we go to church together, it's just like one of us is just sitting there like it needs a Benadryl, like a spiritual Benadryl, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, David, man, wow. What a great conversation. I have really enjoyed hearing your story, getting to know you better. And thank you for all the encouragement you've given, all that stuff. We like to finish as we're kind of... Kind I also want to the close of our time here. Go ahead. I also want to make sure that we talk about what he's doing with his ministry yes. here too. Yes. And I want to finish, finish with that. But okay, be- okay, before okay. we get to that, um, we like to ask people what the message is that they would want to give. You mentioned normies, you know, right. or, or whatever, or just the, the rest of the population that may, uh, may look at you in judge, judgment, may not understand quite who you are. What is that message? If you could pop that into their earbuds right now, you know, what is that one message you would want them to hear from you or other recovering people? There is a better life in recovery. I don't know any way to make it any shorter or sweeter than that. Um, 
I know in my past, I drained resources and in recovery, I am a resource, not just the recovery community, I'm a resource to the community I live in and the community at large. Um, it's amazing the things that people in recovery can do. And with 23 and a half million of us, that's 23 and a half million people that contribute to society on a daily basis. You know, I, I would want to remove one fallacy and that fallacy is that people use especially people that are, I will use this word even though I dislike it, <laughs> um, people uh, are addicts because they choose to be addicts. For one, nobody chooses to be an addict any more than somebody who smokes a cigarette chooses to get cancer. Mm. But they still made a choice that made them more likely for that to happen. Because right. not everybody that uses drugs or everybody that drinks develops a dependence. Right. But some people do. Not everybody that smokes a cigarette develops cancer. Some people do. Not everybody that eats copious amounts of sugar develops diabetes. But some people do. Mm. So saying that they cause this is no different than me looking at somebody with lung cancer saying, well, he caused it. Who cares? Just one less, just one less alive smoker. Makes yeah. my air cleaner. Go ahead. Get rid of all those people. You know, but you don't hear anybody saying that. Right. Instead, they look at us and they see it as a moral weakness. Mm -hmm. um, I started using because it helped me cope and because I really enjoyed doing it. But if you look at the way the mind works over time, because of the depleted uh, neurotransmitters like dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, oxytocin, I stopped using to have a good time. I had to use to function. Mm -hmm. If there's somebody in my life who is in the midst of substance use and dependence and all those things, you know, what's the best thing I can do for them? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, don't buy them a you're an addict card <laughs> <laughs> you, and then open up like you need help. Yeah. And interventions nice are one of the absolute people watch that show. And I think that shows complete garbage. Um, the first time I ever went on, on, on a call like that with somebody was pretty quick, pretty early in my uh, abstinence. And the guy killed himself the next day. Mm -hmm. You know, I, a lot of times that's what happens whenever you say, if you don't stop doing this, everybody you care about is going to be gone. Um, okay, well, that was my only reason for continuing to live. So I might as well die because I know I'm never going to stop using. And if I can't stop using, then everybody I care about is going to leave me. Um, we've got to be there to support those people. We've, I mean, there's a difference between enabling and supporting. And I think mm, it's a good. fine line. That's a good, that's a good distinction. Yeah. How do you find that fine line? Do you, I mean, do you have any? You know, I tell people there's this amazing group called Al-Anon <laughs> that people can go to and it will help them learn a little bit about enabling and how we enable people and teach us not to enable people. I wouldn't ever completely lock somebody out. You know, I have people I really care about that are still in active use and then I'll come hang out at my house. Right. You know, I, I, I'm not going to give them a ride around in the car because they might get, we might get pulled over and they mm -hmm. might kick something underneath my seat accidentally that's not theirs. Um, but I, I meet them at parks. I meet them out for coffee. You know, I'm like, hey, you know what? If you ever need to talk, here's my number. Give me right. a call. And if they call, I'll either meet them at a, at a, at a meeting. I go to tons of uh, recovery support meetings in the community. Some of them, most of them 12-step based. Um, and I'll say, hey, you know what? This meeting's getting ready to start. Why don't you meet me there and we can talk after the meeting. I'll buy you coffee. You know, that way I get them to a meeting. Maybe they hear something that clicks. Maybe they don't. Right. But I get them somewhere and then I've got their ear after. So it's it really is unconditional love. I will always love you. There's nothing you can do to keep me from loving you as a person. And, and then being there for when you are ready, when whatever clicks with you, I want you to know 
I'm there and ready to help however I can help. It's so you have to have boundaries in some ways where you're not letting them maybe, like you said, coming into the house and getting into a car, but you're giving them opportunities to meet you on different ground, like at a coffee shop or someplace where they're going outside of, you know, their comfort zone in, in that way. Like, cause you have That's to, you yeah. have to have boundaries too. That was the fine line and in, in, in the series for addiction. I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with my friend Ida because it was her daughter and her daughter's best friend that we're using. And she constantly had to think about, am I that line that which yes. is even more drastic for a mom? Because I mean, she I, literally wouldn't know if her daughter was going to come home alive the next well, day for for years. Friends that go through that and they're like, what should I do? And I'm like, you know what? Maybe you need to call the police. You have drugs in your house. You can go to prison for that because it's your house. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. For, so, I mean, sometimes Ida, we have finding to that make line, choices. Yeah. Yep. And she really had rough. to, she had to ride that line in her own way to get to where she, she knew that her daughter was going to survive. And of course, for a while there, we didn't know if, if uh, Maria was going to make it Maria and her best friend, Hallie, who also are the two girls who are now clean and they want to come talk on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to those conversations. And they're new. They're, they're fresh out. So That's maybe awesome. also, would you have something to say to them? I think they're going to listen to this and I'm excited for that, but yeah, we're going to talk about my organization here in a minute and you really need to go on Facebook, like it and get a hold of me. So well, that if you now. live in this area, yeah, it's they live something in that you can get involved with. Yep. And if you don't live in this area, I'd love to talk to people about, we're looking at split at branching out to Branson and Joplin in the next year. So I'd really like it to start spreading out more. Cool. So tell us about it. Tell us about the organization, how people can get in touch with it. And um, I have an organization called Better Life and Recovery. The website's www.betterlifeandrecovery.com. It's on Facebook under Better Life and Recovery. Is that in? I-N? I-N. Okay. Yes. Uh, people call it Blur for short, B-L-I-R. And everybody's like, you spelled it wrong. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> still says Blur. But uh, <laughs> basically I say we deal hope and foster dignity for people who struggle with substance use and mental health issues through community service, community awareness, and community education events that celebrate people in long-term recovery. Um, this year, on top of not counting, we do a bowling night every Sunday night from 6 to 9. It's a bunch of people in recovery, their families, and people that support people in recovery. You know, So it's an active chance for us to get together and hang out. We bowl from 6 to 8, 6 to 9 at Lighthouse Lanes here in Springfield every Sunday. Um, we're working on getting a, a every Saturday night. Uh, right now, we do a sober karaoke once a month which is kind of fun. We're actually yes. we're actually buying our own gear <laughs> so that we'll have our own stuff and we're going to try to start really? doing it Sober every single karaoke. Saturday. I love I'm just it. now realizing there probably actually does need to be a distinction. <laughs> yeah, it's, for sure. Yeah. People, people have the quote-unquote liquid courage to try to be able to sing. You know how much braver it is to get up there and sing without it? It's a lot. It yeah. takes a lot. I mean, what I realized is uh, in recovery, uh, I'm not dull and boring. I mean, in my past... I needed something to make me interesting, but in recovery, I don't. Because to me, that's all alcohol and drugs are, is something that you're taking to try to make yourself more interesting. Hmm. You should be able to do that on your own. Yeah. But anyway, uh, we partner with Springfield Public Schools uh, this summer. Uh, every other weekend, we would go in, just people in recovery and their families, and paint elementary school playgrounds. Mm-hmm. We started a stream team. We float once, twice a month. Fun. Uh, pick up the Missouri Riverways. And have a lot of fun on the water, canoes, sober. kayaks with a bunch of sober people. Picking up everybody else's trash. Picking the- up everybody else's beer cans <laughs> yes. and yes. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and try to make this right. Just <laughs> <laughs>
And then we volunteered with, free, with, with a lot of other organizations like uh, Harmony House. We've done, we probably put in a couple hours of community service with them. That's great. Um, let's see, other organizations, churches. Uh, right now we're doing, we partnered with uh, Church at the Center, which is Schweitzer's Outreach Church yeah. here in Springfield. And once a month we get together for, uh, it's called a Faith and, Fellow, Faith and Fellowship, Faith and Football. Basically we get together, free food, you know, bring your kids, uh, and we watch football on a 20-foot screen. We're actually doing two games. Thanksgiving, we're starting at 4.30, and we'll go through until about 11 o'clock on Thanksgiving because I know there's a lot of people that don't have people to spend it with, or the yeah. only options they have are with people that are still actively using. So your porch light's on all the, as much as you possibly can. When you people know, call like, me and they say they have a problem, I always say give them my number. Um, and then here's all the things that we're doing. You can meet me in any of those spots. Here's all the things we're doing. Or if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, you know what? I'll still meet you somewhere for coffee. And right. I will guarantee you one thing. When I wake up and have to go to work the next day, I'll hate myself, not you. <laughs> I'll be like, dang it, David. Why do you keep doing this? <laughs> but, you know, um, I take a lot of time away from my family uh, for this. And a lot of times my family gets to join me with some of this stuff. Like a couple weeks ago, I spoke in Houston, Missouri um, for uh, Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. And my wife actually came out and sang for half an hour before. So they got to listen to my wife sing, who's amazing, sang in Carnegie Hall in college and everything. And then they got to hear my testimony after. So there are things I do with my family. But one day I was sitting in the truck talking to my wife about how I know it takes away. And I'm like, I just, I don't know any other way to do it. And about that time, my phone rang. And because we have Bluetooth, it comes over the speakers. And it was a mom. And she was like, you know, I just wanted to say thank you for talking to my son. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'm like, I told you to give me my, you know, give him, give him my number. I'm like, me and him are supposed to meet for coffee tomorrow and talk a little bit more. And she said, it's actually why I'm calling. We lost him today. She said, but I wanted you to know that out of everybody I talked to, you were the only person that reached out. Whoa. You know, um, I've lost nine people just here in Springfield and I've lost one in Forsyth and one back home in El Dorado. Mm -hmm. So, well, outside of El Dorado. So I've lost 11 people just since June of this year, either to overdoses or suicides because they didn't see a way out. And if I have to lose a little sleep and somebody gets a message of hope that maybe enables them to not go out and use them the next time or gives them a little hope that, you know what, if he can do this after everything he's been through, so can I, mm -hmm. then... I don't need to sleep much. I yeah. used to sleep once a week when I was using. So, you yeah. know, I tell people four or five hours a day now. That's so much more than every Sunday <laughs> like it used to be. Yeah. So Well, and we know Danae's not dealing with sleep problems. So That's we're right. all good. We she's know, getting, sleep, we can, for she's getting sleep for us. We can dig into my sleep if we That's have to. generous of you. Thank you. No, no problem. No problem. But yeah, so Better Life and Recovery. Uh, if you go on the website, if you go down to the very bottom, you can enter your email address, and we have a monthly newsletter that comes out that has pictures and talks about what we did the previous month, and then it has the things that are in the upcoming month. Okay. And we won't hound you. I think we send maybe three or four emails out a month. Cool. Any kind of no, that's good. final thoughts like that I, you have? No, like I said, I just I appreciate your vulnerability and coming yeah. over and hanging out. I just personally appreciate getting to know you a little bit better and... Hearing kind of what you've been through in your story, and I think the more we share our stories, the more people see that we're all coming from someplace. We release that judgment, and I think that's that's what we're all about. I'd want people to remember that just because like this is where we are, we're capturing this moment right now. This is where we are right now, but that doesn't mean that's where we're going to be tomorrow, the next day, or down the line. You know, like right now, I might be a little averse to going to a church every Sunday. 
But that doesn't define, right. you know, um, that might be something that changes for me down the line. Just like I wouldn't want anyone to do that. Like, I wouldn't want to do that for anybody else. So, like, if someone's struggle with, struggling with something, that doesn't define them forever. That's just what's happening in that moment. It's not an if. Someone is struggling right. with something, <laughs> and we are all in recovery in one way or another. And I think that's important for yeah. for me to remember, for all of us to remember that, you know, every last one of us is is healing, is getting better, is right. yep. pursuing, you know, wholeness in some way. So, And don't ever cross anybody off. Um, when I was younger, I had a probation officer, and I asked him, uh, he's, he, uh, I asked him why he only spent about 30 seconds with me. And he said, because you're going to prison, why would I waste my time? Ugh. Um, I didn't think I'd live to see 21. I was a lost cause. And, or at least that's what a lot of, uh, counselors and probation officers told me to my face. Um, and today, and I mean, I have, you know, I have senators and state representatives show up to my events. You know, uh, the state has made proclamations the last two years in support of what, Better Life and Recovery does. You know, I'm getting ready to go to Washington, D.C., and the Department of Mental Health gave me a scholarship, and they have me on a conference planning committee to help them. I mean, like I said, we are resources in recovery, and I don't ever want anybody that's in recovery to forget that, and I don't ever want anybody that loves somebody that's struggling to not realize the potential they have, but you can't make them. Yeah. You just got to love them and support them until they they come about, and hopefully it happens before they die. Thanks Very a lot, good. Guys. Yeah, that no, good. thank you. That's that was good really, stuff. really good. That was powerful stuff. Yeah. I mean, that is real life stuff right there, and we're so glad to be able to bring it to you. For those of you who are able to make the live show and join us for the chat, thank you so much for being in the chat room. We appreciate you so much. If you want to help support stuff like that, keep it going. Uh, be a part of the Patreon. Help us keep making shows like this. This week, we want to thank Bonnie for being our Patreon supporter. And as Aaron said, if you would like to continue to make this show possible, head to our website, AaronAndDanae.com. Click on Patreon and you'll be led to the right direction. Dollar a month all it takes to make our day. We love it. So thank you for doing that and, uh, and for tuning in live or for tuning in later on the podcast. Again, you can subscribe. iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you do podcasts. Uh, just search for Shoe the Dough. And leave a comment while you're there in a rating. We'd appreciate that, too. And if you want to tune in live, the app is Mixler, M-I-X-L-R. Just search for that in your app store. See you on Friday for the next episode where we will be reviewing The Martian. Gun, gun, gun. If you're able to see it on Thursday night, you can kind of review it with us on the show. That'd be kind of fun. That'd be fun. Oh, and also I wanted to play more of my song. <laughs> no, we don't. Do you like it? You keep covering your speaker. It's what the cool kids do. (laughs) You're mixing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. 
To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.